If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 6 as we continue on in our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We are looking this morning at Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 to verse 12, Hebrews 6, 4 to 12, and I know as usual you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and reading along there with me. We're on page 1003 if you're using the church Bible. And before we do look at God's word, let's go to him, let's pray for his blessing, let's pray that we'll be changed, that his spirit will move among us this morning as his word is preached. Let's pray. Father, we do again acknowledge that you are God and that this is your word, that it is your breathed out truth, that it is profitable, as you have said about all scripture, for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. We pray, O God, that you would send your Holy Spirit to accompany the word, that we would know not just the word, but the power. We pray that you would convict every heart that needs to be convicted, that you would comfort every heart that needs to be comforted, that you would remove the scales from the eyes of the hearts of everyone here who may be blinded to the glory of your Son. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see you and hear you and that we would grow in our love for you. We pray that you would speak powerfully and that you, as the great physician of souls, would minister to the innermost needs of your people this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we call upon you to be present with us. We ask that you would be pleased even in the preaching and especially in the preaching and hearing of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to start there in verse 4. The writer has just given us that exhortation to go deep in the things of God, to move on to maturity, not to be shallow in your understanding of the things of Christ, not to remain babes. And now he says in verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if Then they fall away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown his name in serving the saints, as ye still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there is a remarkably sobering picture in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress in which as Christian is making his way to the celestial city and as he is traveling, he's met many different people. He's met obstinate and pliable. He's met all the people that you meet on a day-to-day basis, or maybe. He's met them all, and as he's making his way to the celestial city, he meets a man named Interpreter, and Interpreter brings him into his house, and Interpreter shows him seven things in this house, and the sixth thing is the most terrifying of all of them. It's a man in a cage, 
and this man is cast down, and this man is in deep despair, and Christian says to interpreter, what, why is this man in the cage? What's wrong with him? And interpreter says, well, ask him. And so Christian goes up to him, and he asks the man, and the man says, I was once a fair and flourishing professor of faith in Jesus Christ, both in my own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I once was, as I thought, heading to the celestial city and had then even joy of the thought that I would get there. Christian then goes on to ask him um, what happened. The man said, I am now a man of despair. I'm shut up in it, as in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. Christian says, how did you get in this condition? How did you come to this place of despondency? And the man says, I stopped watching and being sober. I let the reins of the neck of my lust run. I sinned against the light of God's word and the goodness of God. I grieved the spirit. He is gone. I tempted the devil and he has come to me. I provoke God to anger and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Now you may be sitting there and saying, I don't like that. You may be saying, that's a gloomy picture. I don't like that. Well, that's the picture of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. That's the picture that the writer of Hebrews is painting in Hebrews 6, that there is a person who has fallen away from their profession of faith in Jesus, who at some point, because of their repeated turning away from Jesus Christ and rejecting the Lord Jesus as the high priest of their souls, has so been irremediably hardened in sin that the writer can actually say it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, let me say this before we start this sermon. This is also one of the most misused portions of scripture, and it's one of the portions of scripture that can do the most damage to a true believer. And it's also one of the most important portions of scripture that can heal someone that doesn't know Jesus that thinks that they do. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, at the very end of his life, speaking about this portion of scripture, said, I can definitely say that after 35 years of pastoral experience, there are no passages in the whole of scripture that have more frequently troubled people and caused them soul agony than the passage in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Large numbers of Christians are held in bondage by Satan, owning to a misunderstanding of these particular statements. And so this morning, as we come into this, we're going to look at Hebrews 6, we're going to look first at verses 4 through 6, and we're going to see the nature of apostasy set out, the nature of what it means to fall away. And then we're going to look at verses 7 and 8, and we're going to see the marks of apostasy. And then 9 and following, we're going to see the exhortation to press on in the faith. And notice there in verse 4, the apostle is building on what he said already, and what he has said is that if you are a person who is shallow in your understanding, if you're a person that doesn't want to be in the assembly, if you're a person that wants to be away from the assembly as much as is possible, if you are a person who doesn't like to read the Bible, you feel adequate in your knowledge of things biblically, and you're settled in that, and you're settled in a complacent lifestyle, you're in a dangerous place. And the writer's going to say, as we saw last week, that you're functionally a babe, and, and if you remain in a state of shallowness and indifference, the writer says there is a warning, and that warning is a danger of apostasy. Now, apostasy is a word we don't use in our society. It comes from the Greek word to fall away, to fall away from. Um, the nature of apostasy is that someone falls away from Jesus Christ. And the question is, can someone know Jesus savingly? And fall away from them because that's how this passage has so often been used in 
the history of the world, the Arminian Calvinist debate, Pelagianism, the Church of Rome, figures all over the map have brought into this discussion the debate whether someone can lose their salvation or not. And I have to admit that on a prima facie reading on the surface, this seems that it's saying that somebody can lose their salvation. It seems that it's saying that. Notice what the writer says. He says, it's impossible for those who have, and now he lists off several things that have happened to them, who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, partaken in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good things of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Now, what I want to say at the outset, because this is a very complicated passage, is that it is not teaching that a true believer can lose their salvation. It is teaching that there are many people who look like believers, many people who make profession of faith, many people who run for a while, who are like uh, the seed that falls in the second soil in Jesus' parable, who receive the word with joy and who believe, not savingly, but they give some assent to the truth and their lives seem to be changed. And for a while, it seems that they're growing. And then in that second and third soil, there's no root for the second one. And the third one, the thorns come in and they choke out the word and they bear no fruit and they perish. And what the writer is going to tell us is that this is, while it's a very difficult passage, he's going to tell us that there is a person and there are people who, and I've known some of them sadly, and I've become a lot less shocked when it happens. I've told you that over the months. The man who baptized me, a very good friend, other friends walked away from the faith. These men were giants in theology. They were greatly used by God. If you had asked me when they were walking with the Lord, how would this person ever fall away from Jesus? I would say that person will never fall away from Jesus, humanly speaking. And yet they fell away from their profession of faith. They embraced sin. They turned to falsehood. They turned to other religions. They turned to ritualism. They turned away from Jesus, just like the Hebrews were in danger of doing. And the writer is writing this about the nature of apostasy because what he wants them to know is that the danger they're in is in turning away from Jesus because they don't want the persecution that comes with following Jesus. And because they don't want to be identified with Jesus, and remember, Jesus was crucified, and that means you're going to get reproach. And because they didn't want that, they went to a religious experience that didn't have that persecution, and they were danger, in danger of going back to Judaism. And so the writer is telling them, look, it's impossible if somebody walks away, ultimately, if they turn away, if they harden their hearts to such a degree, there is a sense in which someone can be said to not be able to be brought again to repentance. Nevertheless, let me say this. These are people that had real experiences. These are not just people that sat in church and didn't show any fruit and everybody knows they're not Christians. There are lots of people in churches that everybody in the church knows probably really aren't Christians because they don't see any fruit. And the people that have fruit see it more clearly, oftentimes, that the people who don't have fruit don't have fruit. But these are people that by every stretch of the imagination, everyone would say are fruit-bearing, faithful Christians. And so it is a frightening passage. It's a frightening passage. Notice what he says. He says it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. The first thing that I think the writer of Hebrews is telling us is there is a sense in which everyone who hears the gospel is coming into contact with 
the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, they may not be savingly converted. He he may not change their hearts, but they may be so affected by the gospel. You know, Kleenex probably made a million dollars off the Passion of Christ. And if you asked all the people that went to the Passion of Christ that wept for the first time over what happened to Jesus, if you asked them where they are now, I bet you would find that most 99% of them are in the exact same place they were when they went to the movie. And so there can be an impact from the gospel. It's very moving. The gospel's truth. What Jesus Christ did on the cross is true. And it's powerful, and it can have an impact, and it can affect you. It can affect you emotionally. It can have some sense of emotional influence on you. You can have an experience In fact, the writer is going to use a word here. He's going to say they were enlightened. And that's the language mostly used of those who are born of God's spirit. They are enlightened. Now, I think the way we understand this is that they had been baptized. They had made a profession of faith. They had been brought out of the world for a time. Maybe the sins that they had formerly lived in, they had broken from. Their life had been reformed some. They started making some changes. People started to see them and say, you know, that person's not who they used to be. And They had, in that sense, been transferred from Satan's kingdom to Christ's kingdom. They were members in churches. They sat under the word. They were excited to talk about the things of the Lord. They were, in that sense, enlightened. They were, in that sense, enlightened. And then he says, notice the second thing he says, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the harder phrase, because this sounds like someone could have the Holy Spirit savingly and then fall away. But what the writer is saying is they partook of the influences of the spirit, just like Saul, King Saul, who we don't know if he was a believer or not. King Saul was out prophesying with the prophets when the spirit fell on him. Judas went out and he preached the gospel with all the other disciples. Judas, Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to his disciples. He sent them out. Judas had the influences of the spirit. He had a renewed mind. He had in, in every sense of our perception he had what all the other disciples had he was a partaker of the holy spirit in that sense i think the writer is referring back to the beginning of chapter two notice there in the beginning of chapter two when he says in verse four that with the coming of jesus god bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his own will. God can give spiritual gifts to people without regenerating them. God can give someone a spiritual gift. He can give them a gift of teaching. He can give them a gift of mercy. He can give them a gift of caring about things. He can give them a gift of administration. He, he in the first century, gave supernatural gifts. Judas could cast out demons. Judas came back and said, Lord, we cast out demons. They went away in your name. He had power. And I think when the writer says... They partook of the Holy Spirit and the powers of the age to come. They knew something of the supernatural power of the Spirit of God on them. And yet, for all of that, they fell away. They fell away. And notice, notice what he says as he goes on. He says, they tasted the good things of the word of God. And I think here, this is really where the apostle would have us land. They understood the gospel. They didn't like so many, hear the gospel and say, I don't understand that. I don't believe that. That is foolishness. They received it. They said, yes, I understand that Jesus, the son of God, died in the place of sinners. And yes, I believe that he did that for me. They said that. They had an assent, an intellectual ability to taste the good things, the gospel. Intellectually, they had the ability of doing that. 
and they fell away. And so I want to say this at the outset, that apostasy is a very real thing. It's a very frightening thing. You should not read this portion and say, that's not me. If you, right now, and, and all week, I have not read this passage once and said, that's not me. I think the worst thing that you could do is read this and say, that's not me, that's for them over there. I think you need to read this and say, is this me? Have I only had some sort of temporal experience in the things of Christ? We'll get to the marks in a second. But what I want to say is that actually this passage says more by what it doesn't say than by what it does. The writer doesn't say they were regenerate, they were justified, they were adopted, they were sanctified. He doesn't say that they had the saving benefits. He doesn't say they had the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say that they were in union with Jesus and that they had the graces of the Spirit marking their life. He doesn't say that they had the salvation that's in Jesus by faith alone. And so I think we have to take it in that first sense that that these are people who have had an experience and that they've fallen away. And I think when we ask the question about apostasy, we have to ask the question, how does it happen? Not just what is it, but how does it happen? How do we come to fall away from Jesus Christ? How does someone come to turn away? And I think the answer to that is found back in chapter 3, where the writer says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God because of the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I want to say a few things because I could do tremendous damage to you um, inadvertently if I don't say this. The writer is not saying that believers never fall. He's not saying that believers never fall grievously into very severe sin. He's not saying that. I think that would be a very damaging thing to true believers, to have the idea that if they somehow sin or presumptuously even, knowingly, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Let me say, David, King David, prayed, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins because David knew what it was to fall into presumptuous sins. Now, if David could fall into adultery and murder and be restored, clearly this passage is not saying a true believer cannot fall into certain sins. Let me read to you what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. It's so very helpful in their exposition of perseverance, and they talk about how all true saints will persevere, how God will uphold them, how electing grace and the finished work of Jesus will sustain them. They say this, Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, the neglect of the means of their perseverance, fall into grievous sin. And then they say, And for a time may continue in it whereby they incur God's displeasure, grievous spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened, their conscience wounded, hurt and scandalize others, bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Now, if the reality is that sin is what leads to apostasy and sin is what leads to turning away from Jesus and embracing sin is what leads to what Romans, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is talking about. And yet we know from other places that Peter falls, he denies the Lord and he's restored. So clearly it's not saying there's some sin you could commit and that's it. Clearly it's not saying that. It's not saying there is some sin and once you do that, that's it. You're done. God's done with you. 
Well, what are we to make of this? Well, I think we have to have categories. We have to have a category of apostasy. That's an ultimate falling away of someone who did not know Jesus. And backsliding. Backsliding is what Christians can do. When you give over to sin, when you walk in darkness, you who have been redeemed, when you turn back and you turn from Christ and for a time, maybe even for an extended period, as the confession says, you are backslidden. You have turned away and God calls you back. He says, return, turn, turn to me and I'll heal you. Peter looked at Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter. Jesus is looking at Peter, caused him to weep and he turned and he went back to his Lord. Judas didn't go back to the Lord. Judas went and hung himself. Judas was apostate. Peter was backslidden. And so having those categories is important. The writer here is going to say something so striking, though, in verse 6. Notice he's going to say that it is impossible for these apostates to be restored again to repentance. Now, I don't think that these people ever really repented of sins. Think that the people that he is talking about are those who had some outward display of repentance. They had some sort of legal repentance. There was some turning in their life. There was some moral renovation that they did because they summons up some strength to stop doing something. And they were like the man in Jesus's parable that sweeps his house. Remember, he sweeps his house clean and and then the worst state is worse than the beginning, Jesus says. Anybody trying to clean themselves up and, and bring about that legal repentance? And notice that he says it's impossible with the apostate to renew them again to repentance. Why is the nature of apostasy such that those who do it can never be renewed to repentance? Well, I don't think it means that God can't bring them to repentance. I don't think that's what it means. It's not saying that God is not able. God is the only one that gives repentance. If you are repenting of your sins, it is because of the grace of Almighty God. If you go to the throne of grace and confess your sins, it is because of God's sovereign grace in bringing you to repentance. And so it's not saying it's impossible for God. What it's saying is that certain people can so harden their hearts to the gospel and embrace sin that they turn away and that they reach a point where God gives them over to irremediable hardening. This was Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. If we continue embracing sin at some point, God could say, okay, I give you over to that sin. That's why I think we have to pray on a daily basis. Lord, lead me in the paths of righteousness. Don't give me over to the sin. Make me to hate sin the way you hate sin. Because even though apostasy and backsliding are two different things, I want to read to you what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, the solemn fact is that none of us can tell the difference between the beginning of backsliding and the beginning of apostasy, both look the same. Now, what that means for us, what that means for us, and we'll come to this in a minute, is that we ought to be vigorous in walking in faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance of our sins, not embracing sin. If there is sin that we are playing with, going and repenting of it quickly, dealing with it, going to the Lord Jesus, fixing your eyes back on him, Going back to him because the longer you embrace sin and live in it, the harder the heart gets. And what Ferguson says is the first step toward apostasy and the first step toward backsliding are the same step. They're the same step. Now, I want to say, secondly, how do we know? 
How do we know these things? Well, notice what the writer of Hebrews does. He tells us that ultimately what these people are doing is they are crucifying again for themselves the Son of God and putting him to an open shame. They are essentially taking up the hammer and the nails and they are saying, Lord Jesus, we will crucify you again. They are putting themselves back with the crowds crying out, crucify him, crucify him. They are ultimately saying, I don't believe that Jesus is who he said he is. I don't believe in my heart that he is the savior of sinners. I don't believe that I'm a sinner that needs him to cleanse me of sin. I will take up the hammer and the nails and I will crucify him again to myself. And notice that the attitude towards Jesus is now an attitude of contempt or disinterest. And, you know, I want to say this. That doesn't start with your verbal affirmations. Anybody can sit around and say, yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross for sinners, and it's in the heart. Let me say that. The re-crucifying of Jesus in an apostate is the taking up the hammer and the nails in their heart. It's an indifference to the things of the gospel. It's an indifference to the crucified Son of God. It's a saying, I don't really need Jesus. I will go on with my life without him. Sometimes it manifests itself in saying, you know, I've heard too much biblical preaching. I've heard too many warnings. I've heard too many searching things. This is not the Christianity I want. I will go to an external Christianity with rituals where it's done for me. I will go to a Christianity that's built on externalism, that's built on, uh, on sacramentalism, where I just get the grace from just doing it. I go, I don't have to examine my heart, I don't have to know my need for Jesus in my heart, and so I'll just give myself over to an external form of Christianity, and that is a first step toward apostasy. And notice... How else we know the writer brings out this wonderful illustration, which I think in spring is so appropriate for us. Notice what he says in verse seven, the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. When he comes to talk about the marks of apostasy, what he does is he brings out this beautiful illustration. He says the church is like a field. It's like a garden. The church is like God's garden, the visible church. And the word of God is like rain that comes down, like spring showers, God making it rain down so that the earth and that his garden causes growth and, and flourishing and flowers and herbs come up. And God sends that rain down on the whole garden. And if you're like me and you Walk out and look at your yard, you get discouraged every April because as the grass starts to get green, there's all the, the fake grass taking over and there's all the weeds taking over. And as the flowers start to grow, there are the vines coming in and choking out the bushes and taking over. And what the writer of Hebrews says is that's what the visible church is like always. And in the visible church, there are always those who bear herbs that are useful and bring forth fruit that is beneficial and that is pleasing to God. And there are always those who hear the word and instead of bringing forth fruit, thorns and thistles come up, sin overtakes it, and the, and the word is choked out. This is, this is so reminiscent, isn't it, to Jesus' parable of the four soils, even the imagery of the thorns and the thistles. And so, like I said at the beginning, we need to ask, are there thorns and thistles in my life? Is there sin 
that I'm tolerating, that I'm harboring. Maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's anger, maybe it's lust, maybe it's pride, maybe it's greed, maybe it's self-righteousness. It could be any of those things. And, and if those things are dwelling in us, what we need to do is we need to go to the one who wore the crown of thorns. If there are thorns in your life, let me tell you this morning, the thing you need to do and I need to do is we need to go to the one that wore the thorns, who took the curse on himself, who wore the symbol of the curse on himself at Calvary. And we need to go to him and say, Lord Jesus, clean the thorns out of my soul, cleanse my life, make me a healthy, vibrant, fruitful Christian. And you know what happens when we do that? God begins to prune. This is what Jesus says. When we do that, God the Father, who is the vine dresser, he comes in and he begins to prune. And when, when he does, that pruning is often very dangerous and very difficult for us, very hard for us to go through the pruning. Um, those are the chastening moments when God begins to clean the thorns out of the lives of true believers and prune them so that they bear fruit. And Jesus says that they will bear much fruit, that they will, that every, every branch that abides in me by faith will bear much fruit. Now, let me say this. Thirdly, the writer of Hebrews is going to give an exhortation to us. And notice there in verse 9, and I think this is so helpful because it would be easy for us to hear the warning, to hear everything that was said, and to say, I see some thorns in my life. Because you know what? I can say that. Every Christian who knows his heart to any extent, better be able to say, there are some thorns in my life. And if you can't, you are foolish and deceived and blind. Because we are so far from what we should be in Jesus. And there's a danger. We could look and we could say, well, I see some thorns. How do I know? How do I know that I'm going to make it? How do I know that I won't be like the man in the cage? How do I know that I won't come to this place where I would fall away. And what I would say to you is that if you are concerned about that, if you have a concern about that, that is a good thing. If you have any concern, if you have no concern right now, you are in a very dangerous place. And I imagine that there are a lot of people that would hear a sermon like this and have no concern at all. You are the one I'm talking to. And if you have concern, the good news is that I hope and am confident that we together would be going to Jesus and saying, Lord Jesus, heal me, clean out the thorns of my life, make me to hate sin, remove the scarring of my heart, soften my heart. Notice what the writer says in verse nine, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. I love this. You get the weightiest most potentially damaging warning in scripture. And then the writer says, but we think better things of you. And what he's saying is, there's fruit that I've seen in your life. He saw fruit in the lives of the Hebrews. And notice what he's going to say to them. He's going to say, we feel better things of you because of the things that belong to salvation. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love in the ways that you minister to the saints. And what he's saying is, how can you know that that won't be you. Well, do you love the saints? Are you seeking to minister to the saints? Are you seeking to be fervent in Christian outreach? Are you seeking to use the gifts God's given you to bless others? Or are you just living for self? And he's saying a, a true believer has at various times and in various degrees ministered to the needs of the saints and that God 
knows what he's done. He knows the fruit he's borne in the lives of his people. And then notice the exhortation in 11, we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. If you're asking what is the right response to all of this today, here is the right response. You and I need to be earnest, zealous. Think about something you really care about a lot, something you're passionate about. You should be a thousand times more passionate about the well-being of your soul than whatever makes you most passionate, whatever you love the most, you should be a thousand times more passionate and zealous and earnest. And notice what the writer says, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now that hope comes by looking in faith to Jesus. It's so wonderful. Apostasy is falling away from Jesus. The solution to apostasy is continue looking to him, hoping in him, deal what's inside that's battling that hope and that assurance Lay hold of that and notice what he says so that you may not be sluggish. You see, we're back to the the sluggishness and the, the shallowness. And don't be a sluggish Christian because if you are, if you are, you're in a very, very dangerous place. And notice what he says. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. He's setting us up there in verse 12 for Hebrews chapter 11. He's going to tell us about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Gideon, Samson, Jephthah, Barak, Isaiah. He's going to tell us about Sarah. He's going to tell us about the whole hall of faith. And he's going to say, imitate them. They had difficulties. They had challenges. They were tempted to go back. They could have gone back, but they went forward. They pressed on. They entered the celestial city. I'm going to do something I usually don't do. I'm going to end this actually on a sobering note. Um, Because I want us to feel the weight of the warning in Hebrews 6. I think we would make an enormous mistake if we left here today and we just said, well, it's not me. Um, Derek Thomas, in one of his lectures on the Pilgrim's Progress, um, he held up an old copy of the Pilgrim's Progress, 1973. And as he talked in the, in the lecture on the man in the cage, interestingly, he held up a 1973 edition he had of Pilgrim's Progress, and he says, this was signed by my wife's roommate um, to me on my birthday in 1973. And he said, um, not many years after, the woman who gave him the copy of the Pilgrim's Progress, her dad, who hated Christianity, said, I will buy you a house if you will renounce Christ. And Derek Thomas said she did, and to the best of his knowledge, never turned back to the Lord. Now, you may have so much money, you don't need somebody to buy you a house, but I promise you there's a cost. I promise you that. There's a price that if you are not savingly in union with Jesus Christ, if you are not regenerate, you can be bought just like that woman, and you can fall away just like the man in the cage and just like Hebrews 6 says. And so, beloved, we, we need to take heed. We need to take heed. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We need to cling to him with everything that we have. We need, instead of re-crucifying him, to go back to where he was crucified and to cling to that cross with all of our life. We need to cling to the Lord Jesus, and we need to say, Lord, do not let me go. And you will hear him say, the one that comes to me, 
I will never cast out. The one who believes in me, I will raise him up. That's a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty words and we need them. And we pray that you would have mercy on us, O God, that we would not be like so many who have made profession of faith, who have begun the Christian journey and who have fallen away. Help us to take seriously our need to be in saving union with your Son. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would sustain us and preserve us, for we know that we will only persevere if you preserve us. We thank you for that promise of the gospel. We thank you that the, the work was finished, that when you cried out, it is finished, that it is confirmed and it is made sure to us that there is nothing left for us to do but to believe. Oh God, we pray that you would clear out our souls of all of the indwelling sin that, that jeopardizes our running with endurance. We pray that you would help us to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us, and that you would fix our eyes on your Son, shine the light of the gospel into our hearts, O God, and satisfy us with his presence and glory and beauty that we may never turn from him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.